You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, hello, and it's good to be with you, with you this morning. Um, I find myself in a bit of an interesting position here. When Dave invited my colleague at the Centre for Public Christianity, Mark Stevens, and I to come and speak to you this week and next, it was still in the period that I have um, already seen people referring to online as BC, before coronavirus. And we kicked around some ideas about what kinds of topics might work for this little mini-series. And because I've been doing some thinking about pessimism and apocalyptic thinking, Uh, and Mark is a revelation expert, we decided to do a two-parter on the theme, it's the end of the world as we know it. Why not, we said. It'll be fun, we said. So, the things that I wanted to talk to you about did sort of assume just the normal amount of things falling apart, uh, rather than being in the middle of a global crisis that's unprecedented in our own time at least. So this is going to be quite a different sermon from the one that I planned to give. Uh, Many of the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. So do bear with me here. And of course, from one perspective, this is the perfect moment for us to pause and think about the end of the world as we know it. Certainly, there's plenty about our moment that seems apocalyptic. There's the deserted roads, the grounded planes, the panic buying, the government assuming emergency powers. On the lighter side, there's the jokes about how mundane this feels for a lot of us as apocalypses go. Like, I didn't realise the apocalypse would involve so much cooking. Or I saw one person post the disgusted update, you know what's not cancelled? Laundry. Laundry is never cancelled. We're kind of in uncharted territory here, but a lot of the narratives that we're holding our experience up against, comparing it to, are those zombie and pandemic movies. The post-apocalyptic stories that we've been telling ourselves as a culture more and more in recent years. Even if the current situation is genuinely new for us, apocalyptic thinking is not. Since I started thinking about this topic of cultural pessimism, I've noticed it more and more not just in pop culture, in the movies and the TV shows and the books, but in the way that we write headlines, the way that we consume news. Of course, there's no shortage of large-scale threats to human life and society for us to worry about. Climate change is the biggie here, obviously, um, but something like the possibility of nuclear holocaust, while it's less present to us now than it was during the Cold War, that hasn't disappeared entirely. But it's not only the big existential threats that get couched in terms of the end of the world. Increasingly, almost anything can be reported with an apocalyptic slant. I've been collecting examples recently, so let me share with you just a few of the headlines and book titles that I've come across. What you need to know about the coming jellyfish apocalypse. Weapons of math destruction how big data increases inequality and threatens democracy, our indoor sedentary lifestyles are killing us, Tinder is the dating apocalypse, have smartphones destroyed a generation, cancel culture is coming for all of us. 
And here's one from, C from CNN, brace yourselves. It reads, cockroaches are becoming immune to insecticides. Have a great day. And the article starts out like this. If it's not the heat death of the earth that consumes us, if we are not snuffed out by blight, famine, and the volatile hubris of mankind, it's only a matter of time before the cockroaches rise up and conquer us all. They are growing stronger. So thanks, CNN, for that one. You know, there was a time when we, as a culture, used to imagine utopias as well as dystopias, when we used to project more perfect visions of our society and talk about how we might get there. And we don't really do that anymore. Um, I'm not saying that utopian thinking is any better uh, or more accurate or more helpful than the apocalyptic kind. Just making the observation, you know, we seem more pessimistic as a culture, more worried that everything we have might suddenly fall off a cliff tomorrow, um, more pessimistic than optimistic about progress. I think it's good to just notice that about the cultural waters that we're all swimming in. Next week, Mark is going to look at what the Bible has to tell us about where everything really is heading. Today, what I want to offer you is a kind of meditation on time, on what it means to live rightly in the moment that we find ourselves in as we process and respond to the, at times, overwhelming realities that we're facing. How we might think about this as a season, as being of a piece with the rest of life, but its own distinct thing as well. And Ecclesiastes 3 is where we're going to do that. I don't know how you're doing right now, what form your isolation is taking, what working or not working looks like for you, how close you might be to the end of your tether. But whatever physical or emotional stage you find yourself at in the midst of this global pandemic, I suspect that Ecclesiastes is for you. It won't give you little nuggets of hope and comfort to hold on to. It is not a simple book. It's far from upbeat. But if you're willing to make yourself vulnerable to it, to kind of lean into this time of uncertainty and pressure points, then can I commend to you the book of Ecclesiastes as you walk through this particular season? Again, brace yourselves. As many of you will know, Ecclesiastes belongs among those books of the Old Testament that we call wisdom literature. It contains the musings of one called only the teacher or the preacher, who was a king of Israel, traditionally identified with Solomon, the son of David, who was gifted specifically by God with wisdom. And it's maybe the book in the Bible that, if you're reading it for the first time, is most likely to prompt the reaction, wait, this is in the Bible? Ecclesiastes does not shrink from existential angst. Many people think of religious people as kind of deliberately putting on blinkers of shutting out the hard truths of life, humming in the dark, telling ourselves whatever it is we need to hear to get through the day. The teacher is not willing to distract himself from life as we truly experience it, from how futile and monotonous it can feel, from the ugliness of human behaviour and suffering, from the unfairness of life, or from how elusive satisfaction is 
how terrifyingly short the distance is from I'm fine, everything is great, to meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, despair. Ecclesiastes 3 is one of the high points of the book and one of the best known passages from it, not least because of the song from the 60s, Turn, Turn, Turn. I know you can all hear it in your heads. I'm not going to help you out here. I'm going to reflect on this passage and also draw a bit on the, book, on the whole book um, to address really two things. Firstly, our experience of living in time and basically how awkward it is. Living in time is awkward. And secondly, our response to living in time, including especially this time that we're in. So first, the human experience of living in time. This is a big philosophical and theological topic. I'm not going to pretend I understand it. I'm really just going to make a few observations. In a way, it is philosophical, but it's also, I'm not sure there is anything more fundamental to our lived experience than the way that we relate to time. We talk about it constantly. You know, we say things like, can you believe it's only April? Or, you know, more usually, can you believe it's Christmas already? Uh, remember when my teenager was three years old and so cute and so talkative, you know, where, where did the time go? Or how can this Zoom meeting only have been going for 25 minutes? Time constantly surprises us. We're constantly surprised by the twists and turns of our life and times. You know, who could have imagined 10 years ago that this law would be passed, that this person would be elected, that people would think it was okay to say or do this, that we would now have the technology to do that. We're unsettled by change and upheaval, but we're also frustrated by all the things that don't change, our spouses or family members, our character, the intractable problems that we face as a society, people's minds, our daily routine maybe, injustice, ineptitude. And right up front in chapter one of Ecclesiastes, the teacher gives voice to our frustration with time and change or the lack of it. Here's his take. Feel free to flip back with me if you have your Bible open or to open it up again if you don't. Chapter one, verse two. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Life under the sun, life in this marvellous and bleak and frustrating world that we live in is constant change and also the weary feeling 
that nothing really changes, that nothing sticks. You may have felt this about politics. You surely have at least felt it about the washing up. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? All things are wearisome. More than one can say, what has been will be again. What is even the point? You know, frustration, weariness, restlessness. These are part and parcel of what it means for us as humans to live in time. Why is this? I think that chapter 3 gives us some clues. If we go to chapter 3, verse 18, the teacher says to himself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. And further on, all come from dust, and to dust all return. Partly our uncomfortable relationship to time and change comes from the uncomfortable reality of death. We are creatures. We are mortal. Maybe we're more aware of that right now than usual. The teacher is very aware that at the end of the day, death invalidates so much of what we think we're striving for, so much of the meaning that we want to accord to our actions. Remember chapter one, no one remembers the former generations, and those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. We die and we're forgotten, and what was the point of all our striving? We're uncomfortable in time because we're vulnerable, we're dust, we're fragile, and the future, apart from the certainty of death, is uncertain. However, animals, our fellow creatures made of dust, don't share our discomfort with time, or they certainly don't appear to. If our mortality makes us chafe against the constraints of time, it may be our immortality, the fact that we're not simply animals, that makes time such an awkward experience. Look with me at verse 10 of chapter 3. I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We're immersed in time, but we're built for eternity, and the cross currents of those two dimensions pull at us constantly. We have the sense of the desire for overarching meaning and purpose and coherence, but we're limited and buffeted. As creatures, we don't have complete access to the divine vision, the grand design, what God has done from beginning to end. There is a famous C.S. Lewis quote about this, but while I was Googling it for you, I came across a less known one. Um, it's from an American correspondent of Lewis's called Sheldon Van Orken. Uh, he was an agnostic who later became a Christian, and he describes what Lewis said to him on this topic. Van Orken writes, C.S. Lewis, in his second letter to me at Oxford, asked how it was that I, as a product of a materialistic universe, was not at home there. Do fish complain of the sea for being wet? Or if they did, would that fact itself not strongly suggest that they had not always been or would not always be purely aquatic creatures? Then if we complain of time and take such joy in the seemingly timeless moment, what does that suggest? It suggests that we have not always been or will not always be purely temporal creatures. It suggests that we were created for eternity. 
Not only are we harried by time, we seem unable, despite a thousand generations, even to get used to it. We are always amazed by it, how fast it goes, how slowly it goes, how much of it is gone. We aren't adapted to it, not at home in it. If that is so, it may appear as a proof, or at least a powerful suggestion, that eternity exists and is our home. Our relationship to time is awkward because we are mortal and because we are immortal. We're human and we're caught between. So how do we navigate that? Are we simply doomed to frustration and weariness? How do we respond to the awkwardness of living in time? This is where our turn, turn, turn comes in. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. If chapter 1 is kind of the pessimistic, cyclical version of human life, um, the glass half empty version, chapter 3 is the glass half full version. Life is not simply repetition, it's rhythm, it is seasonal. Instead of cynicism or despair, the teacher advocates an acceptance of the need to discern what this particular moment requires and to lean into that. There is a time to plant and a time to uproot. There is a time to weep and a time to laugh. There is a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Did you see that one when it was read? I've seen a lot of, you know, wash your hands, you sinners, that verse from the book of James on Christian Twitter lately. But I haven't seen anyone talking about Ecclesiastes 3 and social distancing, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. We are so not in control of our circumstances. We are so subject to time and tied to what's happening around us. And we can't help but be more aware of that right now. But we don't simply have to be passive, tossed about by the waves of this crisis or any other. This is not the end of the world. This is a particular season and it requires something particular of us. I can't tell you what that is exactly. But, for example, can I encourage you to consider, as ambassadors of Christ, spending more time perhaps than usual on social media, to consider carefully when is the right time to speak up with courage and vulnerability and when is the right time to be silent. That's verse 7. Can I encourage you, verse 4, to be developing ways in this new normal of mourning with those who mourn and of finding ways to dance, to celebrate despite the limitations of the situation. Verse 3, to be considering what room there is for building during all this and what needs to be torn down, to be stripped back maybe, let go of, to reconcile ourselves to that reality. These are beautiful and cryptic verses. It's hard to be sure that I know what it means to be in a season of planting or uprooting, of scattering or gathering stones. You may read it and say, that is not at all what I think that's about. Great, your season is your season and the activity you're called to in it is the activity that you are called to. And I think that this passage is a call to discernment, to keeping in step with the spirit, which involves a vast scope of possible actions and reactions and a whole lot of creativity. I want to suggest that the pain and uncertainty and the restrictions of this season 
do not mean that it has to be an unfruitful time. This is not an accidental interruption to life as it's meant to be, life as we planned it. It is a season in which verse 12 and 13 are still wisdom, that, that it's good for people to be happy and to do good while they live, that it's possible in this season to eat and drink and find satisfaction in your toil, whatever your toil involves right now, and that remains the gift of God. The tension between the relentless stream of time and the beckoning of eternity is part of the human condition. But the response of faith to that condition isn't despair or cynicism. It's investment of our time and energies in hope. Uh, this is expressed just as cryptically, but also beautifully, later in Ecclesiastes in chapter 11. The teacher urges us, ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures, yes, in eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and in the evening let your hands not be idle, for you do not know which will succeed whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. The first time that um, this passage really lit up for me, I was sitting in a Bible study group um, with a bunch of complete strangers somewhere in, in Illinois, in the American Midwest. I was there on a research fellowship for a month, and I was right in the middle of a two-year period of job hunting, of applying for academic job after academic job, in cities all over the world and receiving just mountains of rejections or else silence back. It mostly sucked. Um, I was on and off at home in Sydney. I was going to church wherever I was, but you know, what can you really invest in? What can you commit to when you don't know where in the world you're going to be in two months or in six months or in 12 months? I was in a holding pattern. But sitting in that Bible study in Illinois and reading chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes, I realized that there isn't really any such thing as limbo. That just because the future was uncertain and I didn't know what it was going to look like, didn't mean that I could hold back from investing in other people, in putting down roots wherever I found myself for however long that might be. I couldn't sit and wait for my proper life to start. In the current situation, we can't just wait for our proper lives to restart. Sow your seed in the morning. At evening, let your hands not be idle. Ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. These are acts of faith, acts of hope. Being in lockdown is not just a holding pattern. This season is what it is. It's not an accident. It's not limbo. Let's invest in it, whatever that looks like for you. To be clear, a caveat here, I'm not saying, hey guys, time to you know, write that novel, time to teach your children Spanish or guitar. I'm not advocating doubling down on our culture's worship of productivity. This may well be a season of retrenchment, of lament, um, of doing less, of letting go. There is a time for every activity under the heavens. That famous line from Ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun usually resonates as an acknowledgement of our weariness with, you know, the same old stuff. 
I suspect when we're facing a crisis, when something feels like the end of the world, what we need is the reminder that in spite of the upheavals of this time, there is nothing new under the sun. Whether we're in uncharted territory or what feels like endless repetition and monotony, or both, the response is the same. Discern the season, do the good that can be done. Recognise that God has laid on the human race the burden of both time and eternity. And that's always in this life going to be an experience of awkwardness, of discomfort, as well as, at its best, satisfaction in our toil. Of course, last thought, there's an exception to the nothing new under the sun thing. Last week was Easter. At Easter, the endless cycles of human failure and achievement were broken through once and for all when God himself entered the stream of time as one of us. God himself subjected himself to the awkwardness of time and especially to that awful finality of death and he made it not final once and for all. He broke through the other side. He was raised from death to make a way for us to exit those limitations we've been talking about, the frailty of being human and sinful and subject to death. And this was truly something new in history and in human experience. Life under the sun, while it continues in its cycles and its frustration, has never been the same since. Those longings for eternity in our hearts, our dissatisfaction with time, persist. Paul in the book of Romans describes the whole of creation as groaning, subjected to frustration, in bondage to decay. The liberation is yet to come. But the promise of Jesus' death and resurrection is that it is coming. That there is an arc to all of this mess. What God has done from beginning to end, in the words of Ecclesiastes 3. And it's headed somewhere very, very good. Life is not meaningless, meaningless. But the book of Ecclesiastes and the Bible as a whole honours both our ongoing experience of futility and frustration in the now and the reality that life does have purpose and shape and that therefore we can find satisfaction in our toil, in our current season, in the here and now. These things are the gift of God and they make a few things possible. They make it possible for us to be far less hopeful than the world around us about what human schemes and plans will achieve. They make it possible for us to be far less fearful of the crises that come and go under the sun. And God's actions from beginning to end make it possible for us to be far more hopeful, far more sure ultimately about the future. Therefore, we can discern the season and we can invest diligently, humbly in the good, whatever that is at this moment that we're given. Let me pray for us. Father, you know our frustration and our sense of futility as we look around at everything that is happening right now under the sun. We are always limited and fragile but we're especially aware of our limitations right now and we pray that you will console us by your word and by the present and future hope that is ours in the Lord Jesus. Give us wisdom to discern the season and to sow in faith and hope, believing that you can bring beauty and good out of this moment, the one that we're in. 
we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.